If you're new here, I'm glad you're here. I'm Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here. Today it is my honor and privilege to invite you to point your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11. Luke, chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible with you, there is a Bible provided for you in the pew in front of you, and you'll find Luke 11 on page 869 of the Church Bible. So we work through books of the Bible a little bit at a time here at Pickle Baptist, and we've made our way to Luke chapter 11. I'm going to read verse 1 down to 4, ask for the Lord's help on our time together in His Word, and then we'll get to work working through this section of Scripture a little bit at a time. It should be around 45 minutes or so. Luke chapter 11, beginning at verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we come to you humbled by the kindness that you have shown to us this week in giving us strength, in enabling us, in giving us life this morning, that we would wake, that we would dress ourselves, and that we would gather ourselves in this place and hear you speak. These are your words for your people. I pray that you would enable me to explain them well, should there be anything in my notes which is not helpful, I pray that your people would forget it. But what they find here in this text would be the beauties and glories of your son Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Is there anything that expresses our spiritual health better than our prayer life? Look, I may be able to recall a thousand Bible verses and recite all the creeds and confessions of the Christian church. I may be able to expound the deep theology of the Bible. I may be able to even explain the book of Revelation. But nothing will express the spiritual health of my life more than how I pray. What is prayer? Prayer, this is my definition, this is the best as I can do to put a definition on prayer. What is prayer? Prayer is, best as I can tell, the human soul's open admission to God of its complete dependence on Him driven by the expectation that he can and that he will do good for me and for the world he made. Prayer is the soul's open admission of its dependence upon the Lord for all things, which is driven by the expectation that God will do what is good for me And what is good in the world he made. The Bible says that God hears us when we pray. That he uses the prayers of his people to bring about the accomplishment of his will. 
And that makes prayer an amazing privilege. That we can pray to God, and as Pastor Matt said earlier, He hears us. He always hears us. And not only does He hear us, but He uses our prayers to accomplish His will. It's an amazing privilege. And so the question is then, I guess, if that's true, why don't we pray more than we do? Why don't we pray as we should? Why do we struggle in prayer? And I'm going to suggest to you at least one reason, and it isn't for lack of time. When you were a child, you knew how to pray. Not to God, probably, but to your parents. When something scary happened, two prayer-like thoughts immediately came to your mind. What was that? And where's my dad? And then you ran just about as fast as your fat little baby legs could carry you to find your dad. And get answers to those questions. If you needed something when you were little, you petitioned your parents. And if they didn't give you what you petitioned, you continued to petition your parents. And then you continued to petition your parents. If you have young children, you may have heard of kids doing this once or twice. You know, but eventually, you stopped asking your parents for things. Eventually, you stopped running to your dad when you got scared. You grew up and you learned that there were things that you could get without your parents. You got a job, you got a car, you got a home. You were no longer dependent on your parents for things. And this was normal, this was good, this was just part of growing up, and this is largely how society moves forward. But I suggest that this mentality in your spiritual life is the reason we don't pray as we should. I mean, society may move forward through increased independence, but spiritually, it's a death trap. We don't pray because somewhere deep down, we believe that we have outgrown our dependence on God. And prayer forces us to reckon with our inabilities and with our dependence on another. And in this way, prayer reveals our spiritual health. I agree with the late Dr. J.I. Packer who said that prayer is the measure of the man spiritually in a way that nothing else is. This section of Holy Scripture is called the Lord's Prayer. And I'll be honest with you, it's not a very good title. This isn't really the Lord's prayer. The Lord did not pray this. The prayer says, forgive us of our sins. He didn't have any. This is not a prayer that Jesus prayed. This is probably better called the model prayer. For in this, Jesus is teaching us how to pray. But it's been called the Lord's Prayer for so long, we're not going to change it now. We'll just keep calling it the Lord's Prayer. Here's the big idea this morning. Since God is our Father, who hears us when we pray, pray like Jesus taught us. Because God is your Father who hears you when you pray. Pray like Jesus taught you. This little passage teaches us three things about prayer. And teaches us four things about how to pray. And those will serve as the outline of our time together. I'll explain them as we go along. The first two we'll take together. This is what Jesus teaches us about prayer. That prayer is caught and prayer is taught. 
prayer is caught and prayer is taught. Look at verse 1. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. Jesus was praying. The Gospel of Luke tells us more about the prayer life of Jesus than any other of the Gospels. This is the sixth time in our time in Luke that we have read about Jesus praying. We've read that Jesus prayed at his baptism. He prayed after doing miracles. He prayed before he chose the 12 disciples. He prayed on the Mount of Transfiguration. He prayed after the return of the 70. Later in Luke's gospel, he'll pray on the Mount of Olives, and eventually he'll pray on the cross. The point is, Jesus prayed. And Jesus prayed a lot. Jesus modeled prayer. And in this way, prayer is caught. It is learned by watching the Master. The disciples learned about prayer by watching the Lord Jesus pray. So prayer is caught. We also read that prayer is taught. Luke 11 is not the first time that Jesus taught on prayer. Jesus taught on prayer in the Sermon on the Mount, which is a different time in his life. The Lord's Prayer, as you probably know, appears in another place in the Scriptures, in Matthew chapter 6. And Jesus' teaching on prayer in Matthew 6 is a little bit longer than his teaching on prayer here in Luke 11. It is slightly different, the two, but the themes are exactly the same. And this is because Jesus taught on prayer at multiple times. Jesus taught on the same thing multiple times. He did not mind repeating himself. So, brother pastors, thank you for your willingness to continue to teach us the Bible. And then when we forget what you just said, to continue to teach us the Bible. I appreciate that patience. One disciple, seeing Jesus praying, he said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. And aren't you thankful that he did? For what we have before us is an incredible gift. This is God the Son teaching us how to speak to God the Father, the Ancient of Days, the Creator of all things, the Lord of heaven and earth. Jesus is teaching us how to talk to God. Did you know that last summer, some fella paid $14 million to have a steak lunch with Warren Buffett? $14 million for a steak lunch. Should better have been some darn good steak. And you, dear Christian, through Jesus Christ, can have an audience with the Ancient of Days any old time you like. And access to that table cost a whole lot more than $14 million. It cost the life of God the Son. But it's free for you. So can I encourage you, not just to pray, but to become a student of prayer. Study and meditate upon the Lord's Prayer. Many of you have the Lord's Prayer memorized. That's good. Some churches utilize the Lord's Prayer in their liturgy. That's good. But just understand that this is not meant to be recited as much as it's meant to be patterned. These are, these are not like a magical set of words like some incantation that if you say them just right, God is bound to listen. It's a framework. It's the skeletal structure for effective prayer. It's a model. So prayer is caught. And prayer is taught. Third thing the Lord teaches us about prayer is to whom prayer is addressed. To whom prayer is addressed. This is verse 2. 
Jesus says, when you pray, say, Father. Jesus taught his disciples to pray to God as Father. Now, some of the impact of that has been lost on us. The Old Testament often refers to God as Father, but until Jesus came along, no one addressed God as Father in prayer. But Jesus always addressed his Father in prayer. In fact, in my study of this passage this week, I learned there's only one time in Luke's gospel where Jesus does not pray to God by referring to him as Father. And that was on the cross. When quoting from Psalm 22, he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But every other time the Lord prayed, he prayed to God the Father. And he's teaching his disciples and us to pray to God as Father. This would have been shocking to the original audience. It's so familial. It's so intimate. Father is such a near word. The title Father refers to God and reveals to him as he's the, he's the originator, the progenitor, the creator, the caregiver, the one from whom all blessings flow. Father reveals him as provider, and it connotes this like tenderness, nearness, affection, and love. Or it should. And I recognize in a room of this size, not everyone in this room grew up with a father who was loving and affectionate and near and kind. Some of you grew up without fathers in your home at all. Some of you had fathers in your home, but they were not good men. And I just want you to know that there are going to be obstacles in your life to seeing and understanding God as your father. And that's okay. If that's your story, my counsel to you, friend, would be to spend time in God's Word studying and meditating on God as Father, on the fatherhood of God. Can I encourage you to spend a lot of time with Jesus? No one reveals God as Father better than Him. Specifically, Spend time considering the passage that Pastor Steve preached last week. The tenderness of God and resting in Him. So three things the Lord teaches us about prayer. He teaches us that prayer is caught. He teaches us that it's taught. He teaches us to address God as Father in prayer. And then next, the Lord teaches us four things about how to pray. Four things about how to pray. The Lord teaches us to pray for God's priorities, to pray for God's provision, to pray for God's pardon, and then to pray for God's protection. Pray for God's priorities, God's provision. God's pardon and God's protection. Let's keep reading. Chapter, verse 2. When you pray, pray, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Jesus teaches us to pray God's priorities. So the first thing that we are to ask for in the model prayer, the first thing we are to ask for as we model our prayers after the model prayer is to pray God's priorities, that God would make his name hallowed and that God's kingdom would come. Hallowed be your name. What does it mean? Well, the word hallowed is a verb form of the adjective holy. Which means to be treated as special, unique, set apart. 
hallow your name. By name, Jesus doesn't necessarily mean the proper name of God, Yahweh. Name refers to more than that. It refers to God's character, his identity, his reputation. So Jesus is saying, pray that God would cause his name, his reputation, to be renowned, to be known, to be seen as it is and glorified. He's saying, reveal yourself, Father, so that all may see you and revere you and rejoice in you. That's what it means to hallow your name. That God would be recognized for who he is. Now, it's not that God's name needs to be made holy, as if it's not holy now, but God needs to do some work to make it holy. God's name is holy. Jesus is saying, he's, he's asking that God would make that name known to people. It's not that God's name isn't holy. It's just that most people, lots of people, don't recognize his name as holy. Lots of people don't recognize him as beautiful and glorious and majestic and wonderful. By praying this, we are asking that God would do this in the earth, and we are asking that God would do this in our lives, in our hearts. God's name is to be hallowed in our lives as we become more like Christ, because no one hallowed the name of God like him. God's name being hallowed in our lives happens when he, he takes up more space, so to speak. When our affections and our behaviors demonstrate that he is most significant, most important, most wonderful, most satisfying. And Jesus' model prayer starts here because hallowing God's name is the foundation of all prayer. You know, every request that we make is to be funneled into hallowed be your name. And every request in prayer that we make which cannot be funneled into hallowed be your name will go unanswered. Isn't that what James taught us? James chapter 4 verse 3. You ask and you do not receive, James says, because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. So how often do our prayers go unanswered because they're actually a little bit more like, may my name be hallowed, may my kingdom come, may my will be done. And your God, in his mercy for your soul, refuses to answer that request. Because that's not what's good for you. What's good for you is hallowed be his name, his kingdom come. So rather than praying that the world would witness the glorious Christ, we often pray that God would make our lives easy. Make our lives free from frustration, suffering, difficulty. And then Jesus comes along and says, no, no, hallowed be his name. And then he goes on and he says, pray your kingdom come. Again, we're praying God's priorities. The kingdom of God refers to his sovereign rule over all things. We're asking God to bring about his justice, his peace, his righteousness in the earth. When you pray your kingdom come, you're doing spiritual warfare. You're praying that God's kingdom would invade the kingdoms of this world. 
that God would set his king, King Jesus, on the throne. And so I have to wonder, my non-Christian friend, I'm glad you're in church today. I wonder what you think about Jesus Christ as a king. You know, we're in America, and America is America because we don't like kings. <laughs> well, whether you like a king or not, you've got one. Jesus Christ is the king. Living your life as if you were the king, breaking his commandments, not giving him your full allegiance and loyalty. Friend, you should know that's cosmic treason. Turn from your sin. End your futile rebellion against the king of heaven and earth. It is a battle you will lose. Bow your knee before the king of heaven, confessing him as your Lord. Repent of your sins today. Whoever brought you to church today, talk to them about this over lunch. If you came by yourself, talk to me afterwards. I'll be standing in the foyer before you leave. Talk to anyone who looks like a regular and ask them how you can be forgiven of your rebellion. Because this king is not like other kings. Other kings come in and they clear the floor with the rebellers. They kill them all. And although this king had the right to do this, this king is different. He laid down his life. And that he suffered the penalty deserved by the treasonous rebellers. And now he stands in heaven offering everyone to turn from their sins, to trust in him, and to be reconciled to God as father. Your kingdom come is a good prayer. There's a, a past, present, and future element to this prayer. Because, of course, the kingdom of God has come through the life and death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, through the sending of God the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God has come. And the kingdom of God is here. And is growing and expanding as the gospel of Jesus Christ goes to the ends of the earth. And people are converted. The kingdom of God is increasing. And the kingdom of God will come at the culmination of all things when Christ returns to the earth. So pray God's priorities. Pray for God's glory. Pray for God's kingdom. And Jesus goes on. And then he teaches us to pray for God's provision. This is verse 3. Give us each day our daily bread. Having prayed for God's priorities, now we turn and pray for God's provision. And this, this ought to teach us a few things about, a few very important things about the Christian life. First of all, your God cares about your physical needs. The the word bread here refers to more than just like wonder bread. It refers to like basic provisions for life. Jesus is teaching us to pray that God would provide our basic needs for food, drink, housing, means of transportation. Nothing's too small and nothing's too big. Nothing's insignificant. He is your father. And, and unlike your earthly father who got tired of you coming and asking for money, go to your heavenly father. He never gets tired of you asking him for what you need. He loves it when you ask him for what you need. It shows him as your provider. So that's first, that God cares about our physical needs. Second, this teaches us about the Christian life and that it teaches us that prayer reminds us, it's God's way to remind us that we are dependent on him for everything. Notice the repetition of the word daily. Give us this day our daily bread. 
daily bread recalls God's provision of manna in the wilderness. You guys remember in reading Israel's history while they were in the wilderness, God told them that you wake up in the morning, you look out, and you gather manna, your daily bread. Now, what would happen if they were to gather two days' worth of bread on a random Tuesday? What would happen? It would spoil. You were only to gather that days of bread. Because to gather more than that was to say to God, I can trust you like for right now because I can see it, but I don't know if I trust you tomorrow. Ask for daily bread. Depend on God for all things on all days. Luke 11.3 would light a fire to the rugged Midwestern, I'll do it myself, values that so many of us have built our life around. So brother and sister, take your soul kicking and screaming to Luke 11.3 and pray for daily bread. Because God is our provider. Not an extra 10 G's on your salary. So far as I know, in God we trust is still on our currency. So pray for God's provision. But pray for God's provision the way God has given us to pray for God's provision. According to Hallowed be your name and your kingdom come. And you know the Bible already gives you a prayer to pray for provision. Proverbs chapter 30 verse 8 and 9 says, and it's a prayer, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. So pray for God's provision. But pray God's provision according to God's priorities. And that brings us to the third thing that this verse teaches us about the Christian life. That God's provision is for God's purposes. That God's provision of daily bread is so that we would serve His purposes. God's provision would funnel back to hallowed be your name. Asking for daily bread is for the express purpose that we would continue to do our part in concert with the Holy Spirit to hallow the name of God as he brings his kingdom to bear in our lives and in the world. And so I need to say, my fellow Americans... God's provision in your life is a means to an end. Don't make it an end. When you pray that God would provide for you, it is so that you would have the ability to do your part in serving the advance of the gospel and God's global glory. Which is why every time as I possibly can, I'm going to keep hammering on global missions. I could be wrong about this. I don't think I am. I can only think of one reason why God has blessed this country so much. Financially. It's to send missionaries. for God's global glory. So pray for God's provision. But just understand, it is a means to an end. Pray for health. But it's a means to an end. If you're sick and you're suffering, pray that God would heal you. God heals. And for some of you, God's going to hear you miraculously. We pray for that. But some of you, God is going to heal you in heaven. Either way, 
whether God heals you today or in a month or in eternity, pray that God would give you strength, grace, faith to endure the sickness, to endure the sickness in such a way that proves he, he is more glorious than my healing. I'm more satisfied having Jesus than in being relieved of this suffering. It's a miracle if God heals you. And it's a miracle if God sustains your faith while you suffer. It's a miracle both ways. So just understand that when we pray for provision, health and healing, wealth and riches, daily provision, it is a means to an end. And flipping it around turns us into idolaters. So don't flip it around. Jesus teaches us to pray God's priorities and God's provision. We got to move. Next, he teaches us to pray for God's pardon in verse 4. Pray for God's pardon. He says, pray that God would forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. So the model prayer that Jesus gives to us exposes our need for daily provision, also exposes our need for daily mercy. I think it was Martin Luther who said that all of a Christian life ought to be repentance. He was right about that. We ought to be confessing our sins. Now listen, your victory over sin will never come by heroic feats of willpower. Your victory over sin will never come by heroic feats of willpower, but they will come, as Ray Ortland puts it, by confessing them to death. The Bible teaches us to confess our sins to God. But might I remind you that the Bible also teaches us to confess our sins to one another. And it seems to me this is an oft-neglected part of our discipleship. And PBC, when was the last time you remember someone or you yourself confessing specific sins to a trusted brother or sister? I hope it's a regular part of your life. I hope you feel comfortable having those people in your life that you can just... Sit down with and say, brother, please pray for me. I viewed pornography last night. I sinned against God and my wife and my children. I spoke harshly to my wife last night. Sister, pray for me. I've let bitterness spring up in my heart. I gossiped. I've been misusing prescription pills. You know, around here we... We talk a lot about sin and our sin nature. And that's good. We should. We need to. But let's not talk about sin as if it's a concession. Like, doggone sinner. What are you going to do? We don't concede to sin, we confess sin, we kill sin, we mourn sin, we lay sin at the blood of Jesus Christ and we watch it die. We pursue holiness, purity, and righteousness and the kind of life that honors the Lord. If we truly want to be a gospel-centered church, a gospel people with a gospel culture, if we are truly serious about the holiness of God in our membership, then we need to start by fearlessly being honest about the condition of our hearts and confessing our sins to a trusted brother or sister. Not in generalities, 
but in specific. We think that honest confession of our sin makes us vulnerable. Oh, it makes us less vulnerable. If you confess your sin to a brother or sister in the Lord, sure, you risk some immature Christian thinking less of you. But if you lie about yourself to others and to yourself about your sin, you risk far worse. Pride, self-reliance, and a hard heart. So confession of your sin will not put you in a prison. It will break you out of one. So pray for God's pardon. Now I would like you to notice the, shall we say, uncomfortable way that our Lord speaks about the connection between our forgiveness from God and our forgiveness of others. Now, us Reformation-minded folks, this, Jesus is just comfortable speaking in this way. Matthew chapter 6, verse 15, and I quote, listen to this. This is the Lord himself. If you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you of your trespasses. Is the Lord saying that God's forgiveness of your sins against him is contingent on your forgiveness of other sins against you? I just don't know how else to read that verse. Is the Lord teaching salvation by works? No. The Lord is teaching on the nature of forgiveness. His forgiveness of your sins and your forgiveness of others' sins against you are so connected that one does not happen without the other. A person who is unwilling to forgive has not understood the extent of God's forgiveness of them. Once you understand just what you've been forgiven for, brother, sister, you'll forgive anyone of anything. Now, we'd like you to notice Jesus' change of words in this verse. He flips words on you. Forgive us our sins, for we forgive others who are indebted to us. You see, sin is a debt owed. And the debt owed to God for your sin and mine has been paid on the cross by the life and death of the Lord Jesus. Such that that debt is fully paid. And there's no paying him back. Having received that pardon, you forgive others for the debt they owe you. So that means forgiveness involves releasing others from their obligation to make it up to you for what they did. That's what Jesus did for you, isn't it? Forgiveness means releasing the offender from any obligation to pay you back. You refuse to make them grovel and jump through hoops in order to restore a relationship with you. You do to them what your God has done to you. Their sin is Struckin' from the record. You won't bring it up again. 
Because when you went to the Lord and said, Father, forgive me for I have sinned, he struck it from the record. He won't bring it up again. It's under the blood. It does not exist. Separated as far as the east is from the west. And so, as, as someone in here who has received that kind of forgiveness, you offer that same to the offender. Struck from the record. I won't bring it up again. I won't bring it up again to your hurt. I won't tell others about it. And nor will I make you jump through hoops to make it up to me. I'm not going to give you the cold shoulder. Can you imagine the state of our life if our God said, doggone, how much did I have to pay for you? Now I'm giving you the cold shoulder? And Because that, that's how the Lord, he has not done this to us. We don't do this to others. Well, we're out of time. Pray God's priorities, pray God's provision, pray God's pardon. Finally, pray God's protection. This is where we'll have to end. Verse 4, the last part, and lead us not to temptation. I, I'm, I'm confused by this. Just to be honest with you, I'm working on this all week long. Why would we need to pray this? God doesn't dangle sin in front of my life like, come and get it, little one, come and get it. So why would I need that God would not lead me into temptation? Well, you study it out. This is the best I can come up with. The word, the word temptation here can also be translated and is also translated as testing. And so this is why I think it means we're praying that God would protect us because the Bible teaches that God allows his people to go through trials, through testing, which is something he did Job and Abraham and Paul. I mean, you guys have read 2 Corinthians. You know, the, the Lord allowed a thorn in the flesh of the Apostle Paul, which was very much a, a suffering. And he asked the Lord to have it removed. And God said, uh-uh. And then God explained himself. Jesus explained himself and said, the reason that I'm allowing you to have this thorn in your side is simply because of your great learning. Your great experiences, if left unchecked, will lend themselves to you trusting in yourself, not in me. And so Paul allowed the thorn, or God allowed the thorn in the flesh in Paul's life so that Paul would learn to trust and depend upon the Lord and learn that my grace is sufficient for you, that Christ's own strength is put on display in Paul's weakness. So I, I think that's what we're praying when we pray, lead us not into temptation. We're asking God to protect us from giving in to temptation during those times of testing. I often use this verse in counseling. It's so helpful. Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he said, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. There's that word. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So I think what Jesus is telling us to pray is to pray that God would not only provide that way of escape, but that he would give us the strength to take it. You do the studying. You let me know what you come up with. In the end, Pickle Baptist, pray like this. Pray like the Lord taught you to pray. Prayer is your soul's open admission to your God about your complete dependence upon Him. It is driven by your expectation that He will do what is right for you and He will do what is right and good in the earth. And you should know that you are never closer to being the person that God made you to be than when you are depending upon him in prayer. I wonder if the opposite is true. 
that you're never further away from the person He created you to be than when you're not depending upon Him in your life. We just have to get this through our heads. The greatest thing about us is our need for God. Independence is a liability. Dependence is your strength. That your weakness, your need for your God is the stage upon which He will hallow His name. And prayer is the script. And I think that's why Dr. Packer said that prayer is the measure of the man. Since God is our Father who hears our prayers, pray like Jesus taught us. Let's do that now. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. We are humbled and thankful for your help on these matters. Thank you, Lord, for teaching us how to pray. Thank you for sending us your Holy Spirit and giving us understanding. And Lord, we confess that we are poor and pitiable and needy people who need your mercy and that we have looked at dependence all wrong. Lord, we spend most of our lives trying to put our best foot forward, shrinking back from anything that would expose our neediness. I just don't know how that has affected us. Please help us. Give us the God-glorifying faith to confess our sins to one another and enable us to bring these ugly things into the light and watch them die. And Lord, I don't want to end this prayer before I pray for my people those here who have struggled to forgive, those here who are harboring bitterness and resentment. Have mercy on them. Please do not allow unforgiveness to harden their heart. Lord, please soften their heart. Reveal to them the extent of your forgiveness through Jesus. The price that you paid to grant them freedom from these things. And having seen this, may they offer the free and full forgiveness to others who have sinned against them. Amen. Please stand to your feet for the assurance of pardon. We'll have one more song and then Pastor Paul is going to come and Bless us with the benediction. At the end of our services, we always like to end on an assurance of pardon. The scripture gives us lots of places that tell us that when we confess our sins to God, He's faithful and just to forgive us. One of those assurances comes from Psalm 25, verse 11, where we read, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great.